If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Episode 4 of the Faith on Fire podcast, Finding Peace in a Financial Storm. You are now listening to the Faith on Fire podcast, a pod for financial literacy, coaching, and real-life examples on how to transform your finances. I'm your host, Simone Brumel. Follow me on my path to financial freedom, and I'll give you tips on how to start and continue yours. Money is a tool, so learn how to use it wisely. Hello, listeners. Welcome to everyone who's joining me for the first time and everyone who's listened before. I appreciate you for clicking play, especially during this interesting time of social distancing and isolation. Um, If you've decided to listen to this podcast and trying to find something to do, I appreciate that listen as well. Um, Today's podcast, I want to focus on dealing with financial emergencies. So as we're all trying to figure out what the effects of COVID-19 or coronavirus will have on us, on our society long-term, we are seeing a major impact on our financial industries. Um, The stock market has crashed in the past few days. And of course, there's people worried about that. And even outside of a global pandemic, we all face emergencies in our everyday lives that we have to deal with as well. So I wanted to take some time to talk about how to create financial security when there's instability, whether a global pandemic or just your own personal situation, from losing a job to dealing with health scares for yourself or even for family members whatever the personal struggle today I just wanted to give some practical things you can do to prepare for emergencies and what you can think about or things you can do while you're going through it and then I have a special segment I have some friends who will join me to ask questions about becoming a first-time investor so for people who hear all the commentary that it's a good time to be in the stock market, but you're not sure what to do or what that even means. Um, We'll have a quick discussion I'm hoping should be interesting and helpful for you. So if we're thinking about financial emergencies or just times of instability, the first thing I wanted to just let everyone know is this is the time that you have to find peace and try to maintain some type of normalcy. The number one thing that comes with any type of instability is anxiety. And we're seeing that today where people 
are super nervous. It's causing people to panic. This whole toilet paper issue and, you know, overbuying in stores. Our natural instincts to hoard or to protect ourselves are kicking in. And what we really need to do is stay calm. And that's where your mindset is so important. So for me, having security in my faith and knowing that Jesus is my peace through all of this, not just coronavirus, but, you know, dealing with unexpected situations, that's really what kind of grounds me to maintain that normalcy and stay calm and not worry and have high anxiety because good decisions usually aren't made out of panic. So the first thing you want to do is to do what you can to maintain a level, maintain a level head. And one thing that can help that is having a plan. That's why it's so important to have a budget and create emergency savings so that if something comes up on you unexpectedly, you don't feel completely lost or hopeless. There's different recommendations on how much emergency savings you should have, whether it's a function of your monthly expenses. I personally budget for three months of emergency savings. But again, you know, it's all about just having some sort of plan. The the second thing to put into place is to start cutting out on your non-essential activities. So one of the things we've seen with this coronavirus shutdown is, you know, first non-essential travel or outings were cut, right? If you're in an emergency situation, the first thing you want to do is go to your basics. So you want to make sure your food, shelter, necessary transportation are covered. The other things you're doing is probably a good idea to scale back on those. It'll just help with your budget and just give you more cushion because you don't know how long this emergency will last. So it's probably not the time to, you know, do the extra things you like, the movies, going out to eat, you know, nails, hair. Those are the things you want to scale back on while you assess what the situation will be. And then the last point I just want to make about how to prepare or push through doing during an emergency is maintaining communication. And that's if you're in a relationship or you're dealing with finances with your family, you want to be open and honest about where you are currently. So if you've already used a month of your savings, you know, communicate that, make sure everyone's on the same page. If you went over budget or you have extra savings for a month, just make sure everyone's aware. Communicating with children, obviously you want to be wise about what you communicate to them about the situation, but it is important to let them know what's going on because a lot of times parents feel like I'm not tell I'm not going to tell the kids what's going on, but they still sense it and sometimes they, you know, make up a scenario or get information that's wrong about what's going on and it's best if you're just clear and open and honest about the current financial situation. So if, you know, some of their activities have to be cut, 
you can't afford to pay for after school programs, whatever it is, be open and honest with everyone in your family about your finances so it doesn't create anxiety in them as well. All right, so now we're just gonna talk about some basic investing questions. Now that we're in this economic downturn, a lot of people wanna know how can I get into the stock market or if I should at all. So I have a few friends here. We're gonna have a Q&A and hopefully their questions are some questions you may have and it's helpful to you. So what's the first step that you should take when you consider investing in stocks? So the first thing, if you've decided that you wanna be an investor, I definitely encourage people make sure all of your other finances are good. So you shouldn't necessarily be considering investing if you're struggling to kind of meet your daily needs. Um, and then once you've decided that you want to become an investor, you want to start educating yourself. There's tons of resources. And if you feel like you're not understanding it, you definitely want to phone a friend and ask out, ask them for help. Find you an um, investment broker that you're comfortable with. A few companies that are easy for beginners to get into. You can sign up for free. You don't need to pay for the account and you can start seeing what is out there for you to invest in. Investing in stocks, I think the first one you want to, first stock you want to own is probably something you're comfortable with or you know about. So typically people go for like Disney or Apple because these are companies we can relate to and we understand what their value is. Um, so that's usually where I encourage, encourage people to start. If you just want to own a single stock and then the most popular way of creating an investment portfolio is to own either a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund or even index funds that give you diversification in what you own. So instead of just picking one stock, you're able to own different types of stocks in depending on the sector, whether that's healthcare stock or, you know, a typical consumer product or, you know, energy, whatever it may be. So if you have like student loans, how would that affect your investment? Yeah, I, yeah, I th think of student loans is you definitely want to make sure you're paying them and, you know, staying on time, especially if you're starting to think about investments, but I wouldn't necessarily wait to pay off all of my student loans before starting to invest. Um, and people have varying views on that. There's some people who say, you know, you want to get rid of debt as quickly as possible. Um, and, and that's a, a fair way of thinking of it, but I'm also practical. Me personally, so what I did when I started working, I was paying down my student loans and had money saved and I invested it. And then just last year, took out some of that money to pay off the student loans. Now that's kind of like a interest game. So the interest on my loans weren't that high and the gains I was making off my investment over time, it kind of outweighed that student loan. So I was able to kind of make money off of the investment and pay off the student loans <clears throat> faster, great. but um, I mean, I still have student loans and I still have investments. How does your student loans affect your, does it affect your investment? No, it, it's not going to affect affect your investments. It will, it's more so how much cash do you have or what's your budget, right? 
if you can afford um, to continue paying your student loans and you've been able to save a certain amount of money to put into an investment account, I think that's fair. The other point is if you've saved, you know, for a year $5,000, you can pay off that student loan, put that directly towards your student loan. Um, for me, it was a decision about the interest because at the time the interest on my loans was low enough that I felt like I could get more returns if I invested it in the market long-term. I was able to just pay my, I was able to pay my student loan. So I was working employees. So I wasn't worried about like losing my job and then having debt, debt piled up. So if you have stable income and you feel like you're able to meet the payments on your, your student loan debt and the interest isn't like 10, 12% or like really high interest, I would be comfortable still investing while having student loan debt. But again, there's also the, the thought of just paying off all your debt before moving into investment. I have a question. Um, what would be a good amount to start investing? Like, let's say I decide that I want to buy a stock in Apple or Disney. What's a good amount for like a beginner that's okay financially, not like falling out of control or nothing, but like, you know? That's a, that's a good question. It. It really depends, and I know that's hard to get to not get a concrete answer. But especially now, where stocks are, real, you know, the price of stocks have dropped really low. A lot of people are, you know, refer referring to it as like a sale, right? So the value of these stocks have dropped so much they're kind of on sale. Where I think um, Amazon or Apple was trading at like three hundred plus dollars a share, and now it's almost below two hundred dollars. You know, you're probably not going to see that price for a while, depending on how long this this downturn lasts. So, you know, if you have extra cash, and I say extra meaning like you're okay with your bills, if as things continue, you don't have to worry about having cash to take care of your needs. Um, as little as a hundred dollars, right? You can buy a mutual fund that gets you into some of these stocks, or some of the shares of Disney, Apple, etc. Um, mm -hmm. If you really start want to like start building an investment portfolio, most places you go to will start averaging or estimating between like five and ten thousand dollars. But that doesn't mean that you have to have that to build a portfolio, because you can say, you know, I'm gonna put five hundred dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month towards this and build your investment portfolio slowly. But I think because right now things are so low, um, to whatever extent you can afford to put money into the market, um, it's a good idea, especially if you've been thinking about it for a while that you wanted to become an investor. It really is up to you because for a mutual fund that you can get into them as low as $100. And then when you look at stock prices, I think I read American Airlines is trading as low as like it's almost like $20 or something because the airlines are really taking a hit. So you can get stock in some pretty, you know, brand name companies for less than $100 right now. Okay, so how does it work exactly when it comes to investing? Like, let's say I purchase a, a mutual fund for $5,000. Do I have to continuously put more money into the fund? Or like what happens, let's say, if I had a share in or a stock in American Airlines and the market crash, do 
I lose all of my money? No, and I think that's are? that's part of the a lot of what causes panic is people just think, oh, I've lost my money because it's crashing, so let me go take it out. And that's kind of the exact I mean, opposite. I think you, don't you lose your money when you take it out? Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's unrealized right now, right? So you put yeah, the exactly. money and it's an unrealized gain or loss. And that's why they try to encourage people to, when you're investing, to think about the long term. But you're not a, especially if you're not like a day trader who's watching the market every day and trying to get gains daily. Um, you want to just keep a big picture mentality when you put your money in. So if you were to buy a mutual fund or any type of stock today, um, or you'd have bought it before the, the crash, right? So maybe back in December you invested and now everything's going down. It's going to, your account's probably looking all red. There's negative. Real bad. But... If you don't do anything, it'll bounce back, right? The money you have in there is negative, but your actual loss isn't realized. You don't actually see that until you say, no, I want to sell this stock. Then it's okay. Now that's your loss. But if you wait till hopefully the summertime, things start looking up, you know, you'll see the lines going up and maybe you'll balance back out to what you put in from the beginning. But that's typically how the market goes. So the value in your stock is going to go up and down. The actual loss isn't realized until you do something. That's a really important point because I think a lot of times we look at it as like, okay, I'm going to put this $100 into whatever. And then we hear that the market does whatever it does. And then you expect for yourself to lose everything. Again, that's why it's encouraged that if you're investing, it's not money that you need right now because you invest money and the market crashes and you need cash to whatever take care of your family something happens in your house now you're forced to withdraw that money and you need cash or you you know whatever the circumstance if you need cash and have to take it out that negatively affects you because you need for long-term strategy you need to leave it in there but you put yourself in a position where you have to take out your money I said, can you take out some money at any time or are there restrictions? Yeah, anytime you want, you can um, sell or, you know, go through your brokerage account and sell your shares in whatever stock you own. And what are the advantages of using a, a broker or discount broker? Like using a specific one or you're saying having a broker in general? Having one in general. So these brokerage firms are kind of like the gatekeepers to getting to stock in general, um, but there's different ones. So uh, Ameritrade and Swab Fidelity, those are more of like your middle mid-level where they offer some type of assistance, right? Because these funds are managed by someone and you're buying into it. Um, so you're getting a little bit of investment expertise, right? So in a mutual fund that has a bundle of stocks or equity um, debt or maybe you know commodities whatever it is someone is managing that fund and has decided what stocks to buy um, in what kind of asset allocation whether it's like 10% Google or 10% Amazon etc someone has made that decision to diversify that specific fund whereas if you were to 
take up the investing solely for yourself and just buy stocks one at a time, um, you're responsible for making that decision, right? Of you know how much Apple do I want to own, how much mm-hmm. airlines, etc. Um, so that you get that benefit when you go through um, one of those brokerage firms that offer those type of funds, where you have other brokerage firms or accounts you can own, um, like an E Trade or um, you know, Robinhood is really popular, where it's just you and you're buying whatever stock you'd like one one off. I got a question about like mutual funds versus index funds because I want to go into one, but still know which one possibly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I know mutual funds is like a group of stocks that, like you said, that they choose and mm-hmm. you know, um, just like a four hundred one k sort of thing. Yeah, it, it's. And then you can choose like how aggressive you want to go and uh things like that right so um with a lot of the the mutual funds it'll be how aggressive or your level of um risk tolerance will determine you know what sectors you're invested in and what kind of funds so some of these funds are geared towards your more large companies that we've been talking about um microsoft facebook etc then other funds are geared towards smaller companies, um, maybe like uh, Etsy. You know, they're well known, but they're smaller in size. And then some other funds will include like foreign stock, um, or other funds will include debt, which is typically just like treasuries, you know, US Treasury. In a mutual fund, you're able to get all of those different types of sectors, really, whether different companies. An index fund is based, they're building that fund off of one of the trading indexes. So that's like your S&P 500, the Dow Jones, whatever. They're creating those funds for you to invest in following those indexes, S&P, Dow Jones, forgetting some other ones, but it's not as aligned to like a sector companies but the index the market index it's kind of the difference between those two okay i have a question um you mentioned investing in debt like with the national treasury how exactly does that work where is it like based on american debt or like the country's debt debt or u.s treasury debt is considered to be the most secure or one of the more secure investments because the theory is that the U.S. government is always going to pay its debt, right? So um, what all treasuries are is the U.S. government um, is taking out a loan from you, essentially, right? So your, the interest they'll pay is based on the federal rates. When they always talk about the Fed lowers rates, blah, blah, blah. The, the federal government owes you for however much treasury stock you own will pay you interest based on the rates they determined that the Federal Reserve determines. Yeah, so it's the U.S. government's debt. So when we talk, when you hear them talk about, oh, the government's in like whatever millions of trillions of debt, it's how much of these treasury bonds they have out there. Um, So not only can we as like individuals take out treasury bonds, but like other governments or um, entities can have 
treasury bonds. Like Europe can own whatever amount of U.S. treasury bonds because um, the government, U.S. government, has taken out a loan from the Euro- European government. And the same way we have, our government has um, treasury bonds. Others is, do as well. So the euro um, and all these other governments loan money to each other, essentially. Um, and because they're governments, their debt is more secure because you assume that they're able to pay you back. So I appreciate all of your questions and I hope it was helpful to everyone listening. Definitely was. Okay, so I'm back with another book segment for this month. And this one is a little special because it's Women's History Month. So I tried to focus on women authors. And since I've had so much extra time because of coronavirus, I was able to slip in a few more books than planned. So I actually have three suggestions to talk about and hope you like them all. So the first book I want to talk about is Coretta Scott's King autobiography entitled My Life, My Love, My Legacy, which was written by Barbara Ann Reynolds with Coretta's permission after she passed. Obviously, Coretta Scott King is a very well-known figure in civil rights history. And a lot of times I think she gets overshadowed because of her husband's contributions. So I really wanted to read her book and understand her perspective, dealing with the tragedy of losing her husband and him being such a public figure. I found it to be an encouraging story about determination and what the true value of partnership is. Having lost her husband, I mean, relatively early in their marriage and then her work to continue on his legacy or the majority of what we know of Dr. King today can be attributed to Coretta. She made sure to fight for the national holiday, the King Center, protecting his intellectual property. So all of those things she was instrumental in. And I think reading her story is a great, I think reading her story is a great encouragement for anyone wanting to be married, but overall being in partnership with someone who sees your vision and understands your goals. Okay, so my second book for this month is The New Jim Crow, written by Michelle Alexander. It reads more like a textbook, but very powerful information for anyone interested in civil rights and mass incarceration. If you enjoyed the documentary, The 13th, it has a lot of information, a lot of related information in more detail. I found this to be a thoroughly researched account of the mass incarceration system and the effect of the war on drugs on the African-American community. And really her point is that the war on drugs led to 
the new racial caste system in America, which is mass incarceration. She details the history of slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration and really explores what we consider criminal and how we use the label criminal to really discriminate against a large section of our population. So I just found this to be a very interesting read and well-researched and and challenging book. And then my third women's history book is Johnny, An Unforgettable Story by Johnny Erickson Tata. She is a very famous quadriplegic artist. She had a neck injury in her teenage years and she wrote a book talking about the challenges she faced and how she overcame that life-changing injury to live a full life. I just found this book to be so encouraging, especially now as we are in a time of uncertainty and a lot of challenges to read a story of someone who who faced something so extreme going from being fully active and able to use every part of your body to confined to a wheelchair. She did amazing work for championing disabled rights in this country and showing that even though you have a disability, your life is more than just what you're able to do. And she was able to really understand that God can use her in any situation. So her story was very encouraging to understand God's providence in troubling times. All right, that's it for this week's episode. I really hope it was informative and helpful for anyone going through financial emergency or planning to invest. If you're not already following the podcast, please like or follow on wherever you listen to podcasts and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Faith on Fire LLC. Talk to you soon.